You know, I've been around a long time. I know how hard this is. From the political science department at UW-Madison. Am I exasperated? Absolutely I'm exasperated. I'm Adam Wigger. This country's gone through tough times before, and we're going to do it again. And I'm Sam Beisman. This is more work than in my previous life. I thought it would be easier. And this is 1050 Basketball. Today on 1050 Bascom, we are excited to collaborate again with the Grass Gamp Center for Real Estate at the UW-Madison School of Business to talk to Joaquin Altoro, the CEO of the Wisconsin Housing and Economic Development Authority, to talk about the intersection of politics, racial equity, and affordable housing. As a former city plan commissioner for the city of Milwaukee, Governor Tony Evers appointed Mr. Joaquin Altoro to the CEO and executive directorship of the Wisconsin Housing and Economic Development Authority, effective June 3rd, 2019. Mr. Altoro has an extensive 28-year banking career in both residential and commercial lending. Most recently, he served as Town Bank's vice president of commercial banking. At Town Bank, he successfully utilized federal housing tax credits to advance affordable housing options in southeastern Wisconsin. First, I just want to say thank you so much for being with us today, Mr. Altoro. It's a pleasure to have you. No, thank you. I, I'm excited for this. Whenever I have the opportunity to share uh, kind of the I, conversation around housing and economic development uh, in any arena, uh, I'm all up for it. So thank you. Mm-hmm. So with that, let's start with a little bit about you and your background. A lot of our listeners are students here at the UW and also alumni. Can you tell us a little bit about your background, where you grew up, and your path through college and your career narrative? And when did some of your professional interests in housing and business start to develop? Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. I don't know if working in economic development or housing is uh, kind of a a sexy field to get into right away. And I never even myself thought that I was going to be in this. Uh, I was born and raised in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, on the south side of Milwaukee. Since we are going to be talking a little about race, I'll start early with that, that I grew up on the near south side of Milwaukee that was a majority Latino uh, at that time, and I think still is. We see still kind of a change of the demographics, but uh, uh, that's where I started. I, believe it or not, my grandfather was one of the first Mexicans to come to Milwaukee in the early 1900s, directly from Mexico to work. Uh, Wisconsin was a place where jobs uh, were abundant, and so uh, you know he came and, and had... 17 kids then ended up with all kinds of, uh, you know, my family grew exponentially. My mother was the only one of all the kids to go to school, college, and was a school teacher. So she kind of, uh, you know, had the whip uh, on me to make sure that I did well. Uh, Product of Milwaukee Public Schools, Rufus King High School, the best high school in the world. Uh, But then eventually uh, went to, from Rufus King to Marquette University. And, uh, you know, here's the funny thing is that uh, I actually went into the school of journalism because I wanted to be uh, either a radio broadcaster or I wanted to be at that time. I don't, I, you know, I try to align this at that time. I wanted to be a, a Geraldo Rivera, or Oprah Winfrey. Today, we don't really have those kind of folks. Like, what would that be? Would that make me kind of like a, a YouTuber or something? I don't know. I mean, what is the direct like Geraldo Rivera and Oprah Winfrey today? Wendy maybe I, I don't know if we want to draw this parallel, but maybe like a Joe Rogan type, like a there podcaster. You go. Okay. I, I don't know if that's so flattering to Oprah, though. No. I, I kind of feel like that's, I don't want to, you know, insult Oprah by drawing that parallel. But <laughs> That's funny. Well, you know, Joe Rogan has an audience. He has an audience because he has 
uh, information that he wants to bring forward. And so that's where I thought I was going to end up. But it was so interesting because in my first year entering into Marquette, uh, I had, I needed a job, a part-time job. And so a friend of mine came to me and said, Hey, I guess what? Uh, I have this mortgage company that, uh, does, uh, telemarketing to get new mortgage customers to buy homes or to refinance their homes. And I knew nothing about mortgages refinancing. I just knew that the schedule was right. They pay me per lead. Uh, and it was when a telemarketing was legal <laughs> today, you know, it's not as legal quote unquote, but, uh, and so I jumped in and what was interesting is the fact that not knowing anything about, uh, mortgages, uh, but knowing that I had, knowing that at a 17 years old, I had to call people up and say, Hey, would you be interested on in refinancing your house? You know, I'm a 17 year old whippersnapper, uh, Puerto Rican Mexican cat that was kind of just calling mostly people that owned homes in, in the suburbs and Lake country and uh, outside of Milwaukee. So I wasn't talking to people that looked like me and I'll be honest with you. The truth is, if a 17-year-old called me today and said, would you like to refinance? I'd be like, who, what, where? Uh, but I had the privilege of having a gentleman that with the gift of gab, I was able to close some deals for him. And he said, you know what, Joaquin, you're doing such a good job. Would you like to learn a little bit more about this? And so I did. I, I ended up getting some information. Uh, he ended up paying for me to go get my license as a, as a realtor uh, in a little bit in real estate legalese. I went to MATC and got all these like technical degrees as I was still going to Marquette best thing that ever happened to me. Um, but what I realized is that I enjoyed to make some of the money because I became a loan officer. But I realized that when I walk into banks uh, in Milwaukee is that the decision makers, the bankers, none of them look like me. The only people that looked like me were the folks that were frontline, the tellers. And so I said, how, how are we closing this gap? Like, I mean, how, who's making the decisions for us? I'm like 18 years old asking these questions. And something in my mind said, you know what? I want to be kind of the banker of of the emerging communities because there weren't many bankers that looked like me that was serving them. And the way that I defined emerging communities, of course, I being Latino, the Latino community, the African-American community, I actually went outside a race. I said, LGBT, I said, anybody, oh, youth. I said, anyone that I felt like banks weren't really representing and getting to know, like I wanted to be their banker. And so I spent literally now uh, this year, I'm entering my 30th year as a banker. I've literally spent 30 years making sure that I understood all of these, uh, these uh, let's say, emerging or underrepresented communities at a ridiculously nuanced level. Like, I, I'm not Southeast Asian, but I can tell you things that maybe you or most people don't know about them that then allows me to understand how does a bank really serve these communities. And so I've taken that knowledge and over the years worked for, uh, worked for myself for a while, worked for a bank for a little while and used that as, a, uh, as my value proposition. My value proposition to wherever I went and to whatever bank that I worked for was to say, hey, I have a connect to communities that maybe you don't have. Uh, and that in itself really was able to help me both ways. But I didn't take advantage of that. I took that very carefully because of the fact that these communities, um, they're not, they're very hesitant in working with banks. And so, you know, I, I was very careful in the fact that I understood them, built that trust, but then went from, went from there. Eventually that ended up leading to uh, my, one of my last gig, gigs before I'm into right now is where the fact that uh, I met a CEO of a bank that's, that uh, worked in, uh, had a branch, mostly in, in suburban communities, wanted to come into Milwaukee, a community bank, but just didn't have the right person to help them set it up. And I, I told him, I said, hey, I got to connect. I'm not just connected with the Latino community. I'm connected with diverse communities, not just race, but just a little bit of everybody. 
you trust me to build a strategy, we will grow. And guess what? We grew. We were one of the fastest, most well-capitalized banks in over five years. Went from five branches, a half a billion in assets to 22 branches, almost two and a half billion assets. And I did a, a lot of work in that growth. Um, so it really taught me a lot and as to working with the CEO, working with executive leadership and understanding how does a bank come into a community that it's not a part of? How do we support a community? How do we build trust in a community? And then um, how do we participate in its growth? All of that is, has led me up to a point where that I received a call from the governor's office and say, hey, WIDA, WIDA is any interest in running WIDA? And I was like, WIDA? I mean, I worked with them, but I was like, I don't want to work for government not realizing that this actually truly gave me an opportunity to be at the top in leadership and influence to actually work with, directly with the governor and work with all of my cabinet secretaries to have an impact on really important topics, which is housing and economic development. So that's that, that was more than two minutes, but I wanted to kind of give you that background. Yeah, that is awesome. And it just goes to show you how much you bring to the table in your role at WIDA. Now, for the listeners that are not as familiar with your role and with the agency, can you give us your like two minute elevator pitch on what WIDA is and what it does and what your role is in it? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for, for asking that because that that is important. I think some people have an idea. Some people have no idea. People have heard the name WIDA. So let's start with what WIDA stands for, Wisconsin Housing and Economic Development Authority. So uh, WIDA is actually kind of quasi-governmental. We're not an agency of the state. We don't receive any state tax dollars. So, you know, that we're a self-sustaining business that really uses its fee income and its interest income to continue to really have this humongous impact. But what in the world does WIDA do? Well, I would put it into three different buckets. Number one is WIDA cares about home ownership. And so what we do is we provide dollars to banks. These dollars are specifically for first-time home buyers. And so what we provide is low interest loans that provide, uh, that provide the ability for people to put a very low down payment. But even one step higher is that then we come in with down payment assistance. So in some cases, first-time home buyers can come in and buy a house with very little to no money, which is a humongous big step. And so to, I wanna show you to the example of how big we were. I think in 2019, we did a half a billion dollars in first-time homebuyer loans, which was nearly 3,000 first-time homebuyers. So you could see that you take away that from the history of WIDA, imagine where we would be. Um, the second bucket we do is we administer tax credits. We build these multifamily rental units all over the state that protect affordability for renters. What does that mean? Is that what we do is we look at the median income of an, of an area, of a county, of an area, and we say that if we build these buildings and we give you tax credits that make it easier developers to build these buildings, these, you know, many, anywhere from 20 units to 100, 200 units, um, that you have to lock in the rents that are affordable, maybe at 80% or 90% of that, of that, area, that area, or even lower in that area, area median income. So we use the, in, in the median income to determine very affordable rents and we lock them in for a certain amount of time, anywhere from in the past have been 15 years up to 30 years. And so when one comes in, they have the ability to actually live and afford a rent in that area. And then we provide sometimes loans uh, along with those tax credits to help build these, these buildings to provide affordable for rent, rents. The third bucket is the economic development side. I would say that's just the kind of the support of small businesses in low and moderate income communities throughout the state. So we work with banks again, 
And sometimes there might be a deal, a small business that needs help, but the bank is really uncomfortable with doing the deal for whatever reason, maybe credit issues, collateral issues, there might be some issue. Well, guess what? WIDA will come in and either do a guarantee. It's like insure the loan just to get them over the hump, or we'll partner with the loan. If it's, let's say the loan is a half a million dollars for the bill for them to buy a building, the business to buy a building or to buy equipment, we'll do 250,000 and they'll do 250,000. So I would say that's a really good place, three different places uh, that we have. And then WIDA also has a foundation. So with this job, I also am the president of the foundation. And then we put out dollars on an annual basis that helps uh, kind of the housing, those that house the housing insecurity, those that are that are subject to domestic violence, homelessness, uh, name it, right down the line. We provide them some grants to do some hard fixes to the buildings, maybe replace a toilet, fix a, an elevator. So that's kind of, uh, in a nutshell, maybe two or three minutes, uh, an introduction of what WIDA does. Does that make sense to you guys? Yeah, no, absolutely. Thank you for that rundown. And almost unfortunately, it kind of seems like this kind of a thing is what America really, really needs right now. Because as we all know, we're facing an affordable housing crunch. And it was getting worse even before the pandemic struck and eviscerated jobs and incomes even further. So can you give us a little bit of background on this housing crisis, both nationally and in Wisconsin, and maybe also what impact WIDA has had on the state of Wisconsin in addressing this crisis? Yeah, um, one of the privileges that I have in being involved with WIDA is that I belong to the National Association of, uh, we're called Housing Finance Authorities. So uh, the acronym for this organization is called NCSHA. And so it gives me the opportunity to see what's happening at a national level. And at the same time, I being in this position now at WIDA for a year and a half, excuse me, I've had the privilege of really understanding what's happening at a, at a state level. You know, I, I would say that uh, what we've seen over the last 10 years is kind of the, the median income in many places in, in the state of Wisconsin has lowered uh, for many reasons. I mean, we've seen, we've seen the recession over 10 years ago. Uh, we see so many things that are happening. It's almost a perfect storm of, of so many things that are happening. We've seen where there were many jobs. Manufacturing was actually in urban cores of, of the state of Wisconsin, where we would see uh, in Milwaukee and Racine and Kenosha. And as, uh, as the state continued to grow and, and population grow, a lot of that manufacturing left cities and went to very rural areas. And so that all of that kind of impacts uh, housing uh, as it is uh, today. And with the fact that we're seeing income levels, uh, you know, get lower, uh, I don't, you probably have seen it, people have read it, where uh, we're seeing such a humongous distance between the haves and the have-nots and the actual middle class. Those that are in the middle class income is, is shrinking. And there's only one place you're going to go. There's only two places you can go, right? Either you're going to become significantly wealthy or you're going to become significantly poor. And that significant poor, those that are in poverty, that has been growing over the years. And so that that is that is kind of that that uh, that gap between uh, housing and the fact that people can afford it. But why why is there that affordability issue? Well, you know, when uh, let's say number one, if we're building any type of housing, it's expensive. You know, it's just we've gotten to a point where it's been very expensive. The actual items that we use, the wood and the metal and the tools, all of that has increased in value. Those that have the skills to build homes, it, that's another field that's not as sexy. We don't have people flocking to wanting to, to bang on a nail or to design. It's just, it's not happening. And so that in itself creates uh, that, those additional issues. 
Um, you know, in rural communities, we also have that issue is that folks, developers are not flocking to rural communities to build housing. And so you could see that there's this perfect storm that's happening all over the United States. And now, you know, folks like me, uh, students like you all are really actively engaged. And I think one of the most important topics today, which is housing, the affordability thereof, and the impact of economic development on housing. Absolutely. And in your role now as CEO at WIDA, you have made it a goal to make WIDA a really large part, or, you know, you have made community development a very large goal of WIDA. Can you talk a little bit about how you are accomplishing that and like, you know, helping communities develop like that? Yeah, let me, let me, let's, let's talk about that, right? So the word community development, we are not talking about uh, a specific uh, thing. I'm not talking about a house. I'm talking about an aggregation of houses. Not only am I talking about an aggregation of houses, I'm talking about the store, the school, the hospital. That in itself is something that we need to start thinking differently when it comes to housing or economic development. Because we have someone that comes into a neighborhood and says, I want to develop this. Or we have a hospital that is building in a neighborhood, but is not really thinking about how it impacts the people that lives around us. We all, all of us, the practitioners, those that are in financing, and even students have to think larger around community development. And that's where my mind is in leading WIDA is that how do I take these resources and, and use them to incentivize the way we think differently around community development? And that, that in itself is not easy because we're so used to making the same donuts all the time. And it's time for us to throw some bacon on top of that donut with whatever else, some maple syrup and, and package it differently so that it's about time for us to have a different type of donut. And so, you know, it's, it's going to be really important the way we, we do that. Uh, can we do that in as when it, as it as it comes to uh, home ownership? Uh, can we partner with uh, uh, employers? Can we partner with uh, hospitals or education systems and saying, "Hey, are your workers interested in owning nearby and close to where they work?" Imagine if that's the case. Um, there are significant size corporations in the city of Milwaukee that have an impact on the revenues that are that come into the city of Milwaukee and leave the city of Milwaukee. And there are many corporations that if we do, uh, we do kind of a test and ask them, where do you live? A significant amount of those people do not live in the city of Milwaukee, but they come in, they do their thing and they get the heck out. I'd be curious as to how that is the case if corporations uh, you know, and businesses and, and if we had more of a responsibility to living where we work, how would that really change the fabric of of, uh, of a community. And so community development is going to be, uh, uh, is, and will continue to be a very important thing uh, as to the way we move forward at WIDA. The National Association of Realtors issued a report on race and home buying. And one piece of data from this report that really struck me was that they found that one fewer than one in four African Americans in Wisconsin own their own home. And not only that, but that this is the lowest percentage in the entire nation. So what steps are we to taking to address this? Sam, do you know how many, uh, let's say studies, how much data is out there to, to really, uh, to tell us that there's just these, all these significant disparities between communities of color and white communities in the state of Wisconsin and in Milwaukee. It's, it's unfortunate, it's real. 
But what we need to do is get beyond kind of the shock of, of these of this, these data, the shock of disparity, and actually get to a point of execution. That's the only way that we will get to a point of, of, of really seeing success. And I am a believer that rising, you know, the rising the tide really rises all of these boats at the same time. I hope that's the way it goes. And so when it comes to kind of home ownership, I think one of the, the real reasons why we have such a disparity is because guess what? You gotta make money in order to pay the bills that it costs to own a home. And it's pretty expensive. It's not a joke. I mean, we got taxes and insurance and go right down the line, right? It's, it's pretty expensive, but you know, we, that should not hold us back. We have a lot of quality organizations that are getting, trying their best in the state of Wisconsin, uh, including Governor Evers and the state of Wisconsin and legislators that are really trying to understand how do we have an impact at, at poverty and increasing their poverty. Um, but you know, when it comes to housing, and, and, and home ownership, you know, what we're seeing is that you can actually even get into a point now where you can own a home and it's actually cheaper than renting. Believe, can you believe that? Owning a home in some cases may be even cheaper than renting. And so studies have been done to understand what are some of the barriers to entry to owning a home. Uh, and I'll, I'll talk to a, a couple of those. Number one is access to down payment. So uh, I'd say probably 20, 30, maybe even longer, 30 years ago, uh, most loans you had to put in 20% down uh, on a home that there weren't mortgages that allow you to put less than 20%. And so, you know, you work those numbers out, you know, on a hundred thousand dollar home, you know, that's $20,000. We're seeing right now that it's just not the in thing, regardless of race, most people just don't save cash like they used to. And so that becomes an issue. So then obviously mortgages have changed and they, they have uh, they've adjusted so that you could put less of a down payment, but you still have to put a down payment and folks are not saving. So that access to down payment is a, has been one of the largest barriers to entry. And so organizations like WIDA, hey, uh, we add and include down payment assistance. And so that down payment assistance is really gonna be helpful at, at, at least checking off hopefully that first box. Uh, the second box, and I think that second box is, this one's really, really important is access to home buyers education. So many people may not know this, but there's organizations out there that are certified by the feds, by the feds that call them uh, home buyer counseling agents. And uh, I went through this a long time ago. So I personally know uh, how this works. And I've worked with them when I was younger too, is that if you have someone that helps you through the process to understand the mystery of credit, the mystery of your income, the mystery of underwriting guidelines, the mystery of others. I mean, it's, it, there's so many things that it, that it takes to buy a home. If you have someone walking through you through this process and holds you accountable about through it, we've seen just a, such a success rate in that home buyer's education to someone buying a home. And even dare I say it, I just recently got it hot off the presses uh, from my, my colleague in Tennessee. They did a study to show that people that went through home buyer's education counseling had lower foreclosure rates, you know, that that's pretty impressive, you know, and so, so it's important that we know, but in the, in the state of Wisconsin, we are at a deficit. We are so far behind in the amount of home buyer counseling agents. And I think a lot of that had to do with the fact of our recession of 2008 and all of the bubbles, the bubble around home buyer, home buying, home buying is the fact that, uh, that the organizations that supported these nonprofit organizations that did homeowners uh, counseling have kind of disappeared, the dollars behind that. And so we need to rebuild that, uh, that area. I would say 
uh, we got to figure out how to expose people to uh, all the information that I mentioned. And then lastly, if I'm thinking about low-hanging fruit in the African-American and Latino communities or any community that should be should have a higher chance at home ownership, um, is we got to think about the mortgage ready buyer. So there are people right now that are ready to buy or close to it, like within a month or two months of buying. But there's a lot of things that just has them, you know, I, I don't know, should I buy? Is, an, is another recession coming? Is it expensive? Will I even get approved? That, that's a real big question. Will I even get approved? Like we have to get directly at who are those mortgage ready buyers? How do we find them? How do we entice them, incentivize them to buy homes? Because I think there are neighborhoods in Milwaukee that you and I could go to that block upon block does not have even one single homeowner. One single homeowner could change the fabric of a neighborhood because they act different, they do different, and it's really important for us to understand that. If you and I stay at this conversation about the, the shock of disparity, how I talked about this, then we will never get to the point that I would be okay with one home buyer. Not really, but I would be okay with one home buyer because I know the fact that it would have an impact. Then we can get a two and three and people can see that it exists. A homeowner that is African-American in a neighborhood that has no African-American home ownership, it, it is true and it could happen. What are some things that policymakers and advocacy organizations can do to help uh, WIDA and Wisconsin and the nation, of course, achieve equity in housing? So um, this, I feel like that question I've been talking about uh, a lot now in my job, uh, equity in real estate, equity in construction, equity in home ownership, you know, and, uh, and I speak to all kinds of constituencies uh, about that. And one of the first places that I really talk, I start with is, is, is really understanding that if you're responsible for creating policy, if you're responsible for um, administering policy and procedures, what are you doing to make sure that you're doing this with a lens that thinks and is considerate of race and equity? That sounds easy, uh, but it's not being done because of the fact that we're, we're at this point where it's just like, we just got to have more homeowners. Well, what's, what's wrong with you just saying, let's take a moment and say, we got to, because due to the disparities that we have, we should, what about if we just commit ourselves to having you know, not only more homeowners, but some more African-American homeowners, you know, uh, you know, that, that is looking at, at, and, and, and everything really looking at what you do through that race and equity lens. And, uh, if that kind of sounds, um, uh, like pie in the sky ish, there are actual, uh, you know, uh, tools that have been designed, uh, through schools, through businesses that exist today to show up one, how do you look at things through a race and equity lens? I would say also that there are advocacy groups that, that have been thinking of this way in advance of the unfortunate circumstances of George Floyd. And, and there are advocacy groups that have very well thought and researched uh, recommendations. And so this is not a new topic. It hasn't been a new topic. I was talking about this when I told you when I was 18 years old. So there has been work. Why not elevate those that have done the work and make sure that we're using some of the recommendations to move forward? Um, I would also say that, um, that we talk about banks and their responsibility uh, to this. And it, we will see very soon how the federal government is going to either work, mandate or create policy 
to help banks or even uh, urge banks to have an impact uh, with these race, these issues of race and equity. But let us not forget that uh, that uh, banks uh, they have participated in something called redlining many, many, many years ago, and sometimes we see the impacts and effects of that to this day. But there are other financiers that can participate. Uh, and so banks, they need to be supported. They need the help. They need to be taught uh, some of the ways on how they can have a higher impact or hire the people that can give them the strategies. Because banks are absolutely uh, one way that we could be helpful and impact, impactful in that. But there are also uh, uh, CDFIs, which are community development financial institutions, which I kind of call nonprofit banks, that they have the ability to do something that I think is really important, which sometimes is very expensive to banks, but is built in the model of CDFIs. And what it is, is technical assistance. And so a CDFI nonprofit bank could give the dollars to build a, to support a startup business, to help a, a homeowner, to help rehab a, a homeowner, you know, might have an elderly person in a home that needs some rehabbing. A CDFI can help in these cases, but at the same time, built in their model is, is to teach that borrower, this is how we do it, this is how it's done, and this is how you keep yourself accountable. And I think that teaching process is key. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, the, the end goal here is just to improve lives, to make lives better and just I I improve people's lives, right? Mm -hmm. And very, uh, uh, there's so many multiple facets of housing policy that, that leads to this. Uh, a recent study that we were kind of looking at by noted Harvard eco uh, economist, Dr. Raj Shetty, demonstrated the enormous positive impact that affordable housing can have on upward economic mobility for low-income children. And as we were kind of talking about earlier, we know that this, uh, uh, that one of WIDA's buckets, if you will, uh, as you put it, is helping these underserved populations and to become homeowners and address some of these difficulties that these groups have in securing financing. Can you talk about some of WIDA's specific strategies towards helping these populations? Yeah, the, you know, it's, we have to be, uh, we have to be ahead of the game at WIDA to understand the, 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 we call them the GSEs, but it's kind of like Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, FHA. It's like the, excuse me, the federal agencies that kind of help provide either the mandates or the guidelines of the types of loans that we put together. We have to be ahead of the game to see what is happening with them, especially with change of administration. You know, are, are they going to make it more difficult for us to help these underrepresented communities? Are, is it they're going to help us do this? And so we have to be out there. We have to be listening. We have to understand what changes are they making and how that impacts us so that we're ready to pivot and understand that that is something that's really important. And so that's something that is, is, that is, is uh, out there and it's very important. I think the other thing is that uh, down payment assistance, I'll get back to two things that I said, but I'll add, add a little bit more behind it. Down payment assistance is still a limited resource that we have. We can at some point run out of it if we're successful in creating a larger pipeline. And so we will have to do a better job at WIDA. And I'm, we're actively doing this work is find out who cares about home ownership and will they invest in that? So I'll, I'll, I'll make an example of that. Uh, prior to COVID, what we saw in rural communities and in suburban communities is that manufacturers and businesses were doing well. They had a humongous problem. Their problem was they couldn't get workers. They couldn't find workers. Workers didn't live near them. 
And so the issue was they realized that if I could find a way to house my workers and they live near where we're at, that's an ability and incentive for them to come and work for me. And so uh, the question is, could we maybe work with employers and saying, hey, if we provide these amazing mortgages at low interest or discounted interest rates with uh, low down payment, would you be willing to help with the down payment assistance? And so us you know, participating and getting out in the market and finding who cares about this and will they bring resources, that's gonna be important. The other play, and I'm just gonna to wanna to back this up again, is that home buyer education. I cannot push that enough. And uh, that would probably be an interesting project for, uh, for you all and, or for some department at UW-Madison is, is you know, either the process or innovative ways that we can either bring resources or different ways that we can bring the, the, the government approved education so that one has that and it not only does that education obviously increase one's ability to buy a house, but it, it, it opens a door for them to be eligible for the mortgages that we provide and the down payment assistance. Like that is the gate for, for folks to be able to be eligible. You know, just to be time conscious, I definitely want to talk today about uh, some of the things that we are going to see now that we are living under a new administration uh, during the campaign, former President Trump had tweeted about how some of Biden's housing policies might, you know, affect the lives and livelihoods of, he put it, like, suburban women. But, we, you know, we want to hear from you, like an actual expert in housing policy. What are some of the things that you are going to be looking for and what are going to happen with some of Biden's approaches towards housing policy? Yeah, I wish, uh, and maybe as, as we're sitting here, maybe you can find it, but I wish you would have had the direct quote of what Trump put out there because I think people should hear it. To me, I don't know, I, I'm not a suburban housewife and I'd be curious, I guarantee you that there's a lot of suburban housewives that when they heard that, they were even shocked uh, at what was said because it was pretty much saying like, you don't need these quote unquote, these people by you. These people will cause and bring problems. And I know that there's folks out there that feel that way. Um, I, I can't argue that, that the feeling of that, but to me it was shocking that we had a president that, that said that, you know, and, and when I think about housing uh, and we try to house people near anyone else, most time it's people that already live there or already working there. So it's like, it's your people that we're housing. You know, that's, in most cases that is. And, and those that are housed safely, affordably, uh, what you realize is that there's an appreciation for that. And we can't just take the mistakes of a small and paint a brush and, and say that that's, that is uh, everyone. As a matter of fact, the term for that, uh, uh, gentlemen, is called NIMBYism. You may have heard that term or not. And NIMBYism is an acronym which stands for not in my backyard. That's exactly what that is. And that is a very serious problem in this state. Uh, we've, you, you can Google all the stories of people that have fought for, for either having any type of affordable housing structure near their, in their area. Um, and I think it's unfortunate because again, uh, if we have an area that is very high income and it has really expensive housing, uh, who do you think are the people that work in those homes, that work uh, in the restaurants, that work in the schools? And, it, and, and the cost for, for even for 
for the businesses to find workers is very difficult. Those people want to work there. What's the problem with folks wanting to live near where they work? Uh, it, it's, it is un, un, unfortunate. I will say that it's a little early to tell what will happen through Biden's administration, but I will say that if you listen to his platform, you can see how some of this might align and impact uh, the future uh, of housing uh, and housing reform. Is that first of all, he's been very clear about his concerns with structural racism. And so I'd be curious as to how does that then impact uh, you know, his mandates to really see more wealth creation through home ownership. And, and when I say wealth, I'm not talking about being rich because sometimes you could be rich one day and lose that the next day. Wealth is something that is sustainable. Wealth is something that remains and continues uh, from generation to generation. That in itself is a game changer to really pulling people out of all these, these systemic issues and or disparities that we talked about. So it'll be interesting to see how that impacts. Um, another thing that we've seen is, is that he's been very intentional to appointing diverse leadership. And so it's going to be interesting is how does that impact the way that we engage uh, communities, uh, rural and urban, uh, anyone that's under-resourced uh, and underrepresented, and really looking forward to a new way of thinking as we have new diverse leadership uh, at the helm. Uh, he also was very clear, and I think we heard in his speech the other day, is that he has a concern for all, regardless of political affiliation. Some folks may argue that or not, but I heard him say it. And what I, I would hope that means is the fact that what we've seen when, when we looked at the map, when people voted in the state of Wisconsin for presidents, you saw that a good amount of uh, rural communities uh, voted for Trump and a good amount of urban communities voted for, for Biden. And uh, I work for a governor that's a Democrat, but one thing that I've realized and uh, is that the topic of housing is a bipartisan issue. It's like, it don't matter what, who you're voting for, housing is important, you know? And so I, I hope and, and, and pray that the fact that, that as we work to have an impact in urban communities and with communities of color, is that we don't forget about those that are in rural communities that may vote for Trump, that may, may be majority white because the suffering is real also in rural communities for those that are, that are poor and those that are under-resourced. It's, it's as real as those that are in urban communities and we can't forget about both sides of the, of the, of the aisle when it comes to that. And then I would say um, uh, is that he's, he, his first thing, and I'll end on this, is the fact of his, just his concern of the impact of COVID and on evictions and foreclosures. And so we will see that I think there'll be a continuation of maybe a moratorium and making sure that we don't evict or foreclose folks, but that we, there's only so long that can happen too, right? Because that continues to hurt the bottom dollars of those that, uh, that own the properties too. And it's just, it's a vicious cycle. And so there's gonna have to be some real hard and significant work uh, about how do we protect the interests of people and where they live but at the same time, protect the interest of the economy that supports uh, housing. Hmm. And uh, I think I found that tweet that you were referring to from uh, midsummer from the, uh, the outgoing president. Um, you can't view the tweet anymore because Twitter does not allow you to view tweets from suspended accounts. But uh, the quote was, and it's quoted here in the Times, that uh, quote, people living their suburban lifestyle dream would no longer be bothered or financially hurt by having low income housing built in your neighborhood, which seems textbook NIMBYism to yeah. me, as you were pointing out. Um, but I want to 
give you a chance to talk a little bit more about the COVID-19 pandemic, because of course we can't ignore the impact that the pandemic has had on housing as well. So I wanna ask, how has the COVID-19 pandemic impacted WIDA and what you do? And are there gonna be some long-term ramifications or changes to either how the organization operates or just to the affordable housing crisis in general because of the pandemic? Yeah, I uh, I was in uh, maybe eight or nine months in my job uh, as a CEO, and it's my first time as a CEO, uh, and all of a sudden a pandemic comes out of uh, left field, and, uh, and it's right, how do you lead an organization through that? And so before I even talk about like the impact of what we do externally, I'd be, I'd be disrespectful if I want to talk about the people internally, because it's the machine that has this amazing impact, the machine that we call WIDA. And I'm telling you, there are some amazing people that work at WIDA, but it was so difficult. And I'm sure you as students, it's probably the same thing, but it was so difficult to tell folks, we can't work in the office. We got to work from home. And there was this, this, it was anxiety. It was stress. There was fear because people, you know, I, and in many ways, it's like, I got to work at home and my kids are here. I have to, uh, I got to get things accomplished. We still got to close deals. We got to still have, make sure people are buying homes and we got to, and, and then all of that on top of the fact that, that we started getting an increase of calls of people saying, I can't pay my rent or I can't pay my mortgage. And then, you know, we have people going from home. So it was so much at, at, that came at us at so much, at so time. And I went from a, uh, from a gentleman that I thought as a CEO that I would be saying, all right, as an organization, we should create this programs to, to do, have this impact to more of a counselor, a therapist, a cheerleader, a motivator. Um, and I took it on as it was very difficult for me to learn how to do that. But I understood the fact that that is the responsibility of, of a leader is to make sure that you create this ecosystem and this, this net that we are here collectively to support each other. We will go through this together. And so proud of, of the we of folks that we, we, we were one of the first um, government, quasi-governmental agencies to, to take it the, uh, nearly a full bank of 165 people home and go fully virtual um, and still close deals and still get them done. So, so proud of them that we got to that point. But that meant still that when we got to that, now we had to, to make sure that we were protecting uh, those that were already on our, we'll call them on our, our portfolio. It's those that we, that are our homeowners that we, they call us and say, I can't make a payment or our, our so we set up our shop got our phone lines ready. And the beautiful thing about WIDA is that the mortgages that we, that the dollars that we put out in the mortgages, that we service those loans so that when somebody has an issue, they call us directly. So we can work with those folks in helping them through the process and understanding what their need is. Do they need a, a break in time and making payments? What, what is it we need to do? And let's work with you so we can preserve uh, your home ownership. Um, and then the other thing is, is that we put dollars out on these affordable housing uh, uh, rental units. And so we had to talk to our managers, our property managers, our developers and saying, please don't be so quick to evict people. You know, here is our expectations. You have to treat them with respect. And we made, we were very clear about how are we doing that uh, to that we're, we're protecting people so that uh, we were doing, I think the most important thing. Uh, and this is an important thing because there's this conversation around homelessness and folks always ask WIDA, where and how are you engaged in homelessness? The number one way that we're engaged in home homelessness is preventing it. You know, if I could stop from getting, there's already a significant amount of people that are homeless in the state of Wisconsin. 
if I can put a gap or like a, a stop gap in the fact that we're not going to put more people into the pool, I think that is important also. In your role now, we are, we're in a very new age, especially now that we're in this new year. What are some things that you are hopeful about that might come about this year and hopeful about with your work uh, at WIDA? Yeah. Yeah. I, it's a good question, you know, and, and you have to be hopeful in these times and where I'm hopeful uh, in, in our time right now and everything that's happening is I mentioned it uh, slightly before is the fact that housing, the conversation and the topic of housing is becoming a more prevalent and relevant topic. Uh, that is important. Uh, I, I want to know why is because you all as the cool kids, you called me up. And so I appreciate you cool kids thinking that this is that I could bring uh, interest and interesting topic to you all as a, as a podcast. Uh, and, and so very much appreciate it. But you know what this, if we understand how important, how important housing is and how it impacts, it impacts a little bit of everything. We are in a position right now compared to other states that we can get ahead of this issue. We, we literally can get ahead of this issue. Let's not politicize housing. Let's not think that those that are significantly poor, that they don't deserve housing as much as those that can afford it. Like, let's understand that. Let's make sure that let's work on this issue together. Um, where I would say there's opportunity for students right now is really thinking differently. Don't, you are gonna be taught about this, the infrastructures and the history of housing. Let that be kind of your base to all things but then go crazy and thinking what can be and what is next when it comes to housing. Is it the type of houses that we're building? Is it the way we're building? Do you know that they're building right now? I don't know if you guys seen it, 3D houses, uh, or no, excuse me, 3D printed houses. Like they're, you know, you've seen it probably the big, some, I mean, there's so many things that ways that were tiny houses, right? Uh, Pre-manufactured housing, uh, the way that we're housing, cooperative housing, is there a way for uh, groups of people to, to, to collaboratively own housing? Um, there's so many ways that we can do things differently in our state. And here's the opportunity for, you know, the next line, the generation to be actively engaged. And on top of the fact, you want to talk about where I'm hopeful is folks that are younger than me really understand the concept that we have to be equitable and making sure that we serve as many and different people. Um, I have such a pride and such an excitement. I think we've been jaded us older folks and I'm okay with that because of the fact that I know what's coming up next is you all understand that it's important for us to make sure that we're supporting uh, a very equitable approach going forward. And then, uh, you know, uh, I also think that, that it, I would say lastly is that we have to think about this like uh, the health systems think about uh, a topic called social determinants of health. Health has changed the way that they think about health. Instead of thinking that the only way that we can support you, the health systems can support you is by you coming into your doctor's appointment and they kind of saying, uh, this is what's wrong with you. This is not what's wrong with you. Is they realize that not only health that affects kind of the, that, that process not only affects health, they understand that housing education, wealth, all these things are impactful. So I'm hoping that as we go forward is understanding how how everything kind of connects the dots to housing because that'll open one's mind is how they can be more impactful to housing going forward. Well, I think that might be the first time that uh, these two podcasting dorks were referred to as the cool kids. So (laughs) I'm I'm glad we got that on record. Um, But I want to be appreciative of your time here and respectful and we're kind of running up 
So for the just last question, I want to ask you, what should we have asked you today? Is there anything else that you feel like our listeners need to know or that you want to add? Good question. Um, I'm speaking directly uh, to those that are, I, I would assume I'm speaking to some students. Um, and, you know, I, I have myself uh, twin boys that are at UW-Eau Claire. I have a son that's finishing at Marquette University High and uh, really trying to help them think about what is next, right? That's the, the question here. And what I realized as I grew up around uh, is the fact that where is the gap or where's the void and how can I fill that in? Because then my, my value increases. You heard me in the beginning say that because I said, I saw these emerging communities, nobody represented them. I'm gonna represent them and look at me today. Like it's ridiculous. My mind is just blown at the fact that uh, not only am I representing a, my city, not only am I representing my state, but at a national level, you know, I sit on the, the, the consumer advisory board for the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau it was a six month vetting by the FBI in order for me to be on there. Like I'm, I'm from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, South side, you know, it's like, I can't believe that I'm, I have the ability to do this. And so I would tell students, you know, if you're interested in, in architecture, a, a housing, uh, economic development, whatever piece of that is, is do take a little time and figure out where's that void and gap. Like, where is it? I, I, do you, if you want to be an architect, you know, where's that space and place that not a lot of people are thinking about and, and can you fill it in to create an, a value for you um, and continue to, to, to understand, uh, continue to be a part of the conversation of what next, what's happening, what is the future? Um, it's, you're, it's really healthy to play, be in that space because uh, you will be challenged as you get older to always be a part of, I think, innovation uh, in, in these spaces and places. So all excellent. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise, uh, with us today, Mr. Altoro. Yeah. Thanks guys. I really appreciate it. Everyone, uh, looking forward to any other time you guys want to have more conversations. We'll get into it. So thank you. For more information about 1050 Bascom, visit polysci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. 1050 Bascom is edited by Adam Wigger and Sam Beisman, produced by Amy Gangle, and recorded remotely for now.